Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Arduino Education Podcast. Thanks for listening. We are Roxana and Anton from Arduino Education. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite audio platform and get notifications when a new episode is published and never miss one. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Anchor and other common audio platforms. Yes. So games. Nearly everyone has played a game at some point in their lives. However, despite that ubiquity, games are rarely discussed with the same reverence as other media like films or books. But why do we like games? Is it because they are fun? But why they are fun? And uh, do they have to be fun? Today, we want to examine the role of play, games, and ludic engagement in education. And how can they help engage students in the learning process, regardless of their gender, age, experience, or any disabilities that they may have? And to learn more about this, joining us today is Simon Niedenthal. Yes, Simon is an associate professor of interaction design at Malmo University in Sweden. He conducts design-oriented research in the areas of olfactory interaction, game aesthetics, the sensory experience of gaming, and playtesting processes for innovative game design. So Simon's educational background is eclectic. He holds a bachelor's in photography, a master's in medieval English literature, and a PhD in interaction design. In 2008, he defended his PhD thesis, Complicated Shadows, the Aesthetics aesthetics and Significance of Simulated Illumination in Digital Games in the area of game lighting and its effect upon the emotions and behavior of the player. Yep. Um, Besides teaching courses in media design, interaction design, visual communications and game design at Malmo University, Simon is a supervisor for thesis work at the bachelor's, master's and doctoral level. Simon is currently engaged in Nose-wise, a Stockholm University research project who aims to investigate the potential of smell-enabled gaming to enhance cognitive capacity in the elderly. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Rox and Anton. Great. Simon, uh, before the interview, uh, we will start with five questions for our Edubition Friends book. So what makes you feel inspired? That's a really good question. Um, I recently, most recently, I'm feeling most inspired by conversations with creative people. So I've been doing some interviews with people who designed olfactory technologies. um, And I find that to be interesting to hear about their journey and to hear about how they approached design problems and solve them creatively. Nice. That's very cool because smell is not talked about as much as other senses like the visual and listening and these these other senses. That's true. I, smell is kind of an underexplored sense and underengaged sense in terms of interactive artifacts. That is because there's a number of challenges with designing for the sense of smell as well as cultural attitudes towards the sense of smell. So there's a lot of interesting uh, challenges about working with smell um, and that, that call for a kind of creative approach to dealing with some of the ch- of those challenges. Yeah, so any people, books, or resources that have been particularly influential for you? Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, I would describe myself as a firm believer in lifelong learning, and I think that has really shaped my own intellectual journey. It's been very important to me. And I think that some of the foundations for that were established in my first university education with some of the professors there. Um, I have, I still go back and look at my college notes on Aristotle's poetics. And some of those works are so foundational in terms of thinking about how to maximize the potential of any medium that I always find them relevant. And also um, to help me to, to, think, to think about things and to scaffold my own 
my own um, explorations. That's been really helpful for me. That's very cool that you go to your notes. So then what's one thing you wish you know when you began your career? My career's changed a lot. So I think I'm not sure that knowing one thing would have been really helpful. But I think that mm -hmm. if I look back at the sort of contours of my career, I think the main thing is to to be open to, to keeping things fun and being curious. I think that's really important to me. And that sounds very kind of sort of self-centered in some ways, um, but it's also uh, provides the kind of feedback and inspiration and um, yeah, a lot of the um, uh, ambitions to, to try to new things is to, to see where they lead and to, um, to make it really enjoyable in and of itself, which is related to play, by the way. We'll talk more about that. Uh, what's a common myth about your profession or field that you'd like to set straight? I think all the, the myths about being a university professor are probably true. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have anything to correct with that. I mean, you know, it's a, it is what it is. And um, I, I like my position. I've, I had a lot of leeway to explore in different directions and to develop new, new directions for my own inquiries. And that's great. And, um, but I don't really know if there's any myths that I could really overturn. Now that we're going to discuss about games and smell, I have to ask, what is your favorite game and your favorite smell? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I mean, a favorite game? Um, I like a lot of games. I like um, some very simple games. I've been playing a lot of backgammon lately, so that's a really simple game that is easy to pick up and, and just to play. There's a lot of chance involved in it, um, which can be cruel but fun. Um, so simple games like that are great. I also like digital games that create an atmosphere and emotion. Um, I like survival horror digital games, particularly they don't play as many anymore as I used to. Um, in terms of smells, is that your other question? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I like a lot of different kinds of smells, but I mean, there's um, I, I smell a lot of things and I spend a lot of time smelling things. Um, ranging from um, natural things, I like certain floral smells like violet. Um, I like certain um, scent compositions like perfumes. Um, I like um, kind of particular categories of smells like um, roasting and toasting smells that you think of at fall time with meats and nuts and burning leaves and pies. I mean, I like that kind of, it's very cozy smells. Um, I like some combustion smells. I like some smells that would be considered less pleasant and... Um, I was just coming upstairs to this building and, and in the basement, there's a, um, a lot of sort of the infrastructure of the building was, was emitting a lot of ozone, which is very unique smell. And so has to do usually with electrical discharge. I find that interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot of different smells that I like. So now that you were talking about different smells, I was remembering that something I really like to smell is when you open a book. Oh, I like sure. that smell. I, I love that. So a lot of people like the smell of gas from cars. Why do you think that is? Because it's, it's not a, particularly good smell in a sense it's just that some people like it what do you what do you think that it's very volatile it's very um sharp i would describe it as maybe it's um kind of it, it could have a number of different things it might be people just like the smell of it or it could be it reminds them of travel or or a story that's the other thing about smell it's very evocative so it's not just the quality of the smell it's also something it evokes um, I love motorsports, so it could have to do with like making you think back to a particular experience with motorsports. So there's a, there's a whole number of reasons, but I mean, it does have a, yeah, I know what you mean. It's kind of, it's also slightly, you know, dangerous smell. And so there's like a little, it is, like, it is. A little thrill, right? You know, you're smelling the gas, you know, you, you know, it's bad for you and, and yet it's kind of draws you to it. So and there's a lot of possible reasons people like it. Yeah. True. 
Yeah, so what is a game and why do people love games? Well, a really simple definition of a game is that it's a system. So there's interlocking parts with any game um, involving players coming together, uh, usually with a sense of artificial conflict. So it's not a real world conflict with real world consequences, but there's some kind of usually a conflict in a game um, bound by rules or, or sort of confined by rules. And that leads to a, a, a quantifiable outcome. That's a really commonly accepted definition of what a game is. And there's a lot of things you might think of that don't seem to quite fit that. But for the most part, most games, that's a concise definition and it's pretty comprehensive. Most things will fit into it. I like that definition. Why do people like it? Um, they like the um, the artificial conflict part people like. Um, I think the, the rule sets can be really interesting and elegant, backgammon super simple, right? Um, and so there's lots of reasons people like to play games. It's uh, so games are like a formal category. It's a it's a form basically, in which and through which people play. But then, what is play, and what is playfulness? Okay, so play and play is a broader term than game. And so play is like an activity, and a game is a form. So, um, and it. The term play is operative in more context than game, let's say, because um, I can play a game or I can be playful. I can do my job in a playful way. I just described my job as having elements of play in it. So that's not a game. Um, so play can be everything from something that happens through a game to just a state of mind. People have sort of identified a number of characteristics that are really key to the experience of play. One is that it's free. Right? You can't force someone to play. People have to willingly do it. Um, the second, that's what we call autotelic, which means that it is play is its own reward. People play just for the sake of playing. They're not necessarily gaining some kind of external benefit from doing it. Um, it can be appropriative. That is, play can take something over, and, and, and that can be part of the characteristics of play. Um, this is also a set of, of, of terms that related to play that come from some fairly well-established theory. Uh, it can be carnivalesque. It can turn relationships upside down. It can turn expectations upside down. So there's a whole series of things that make play playful. Yeah. Can you teach someone to play? Or it's just like a natural thing? Or Well, you can definitely create the conditions for play. So that is what we talk about as a design problem. Um, you can't make someone play, right? Um, so, and, and, and I don't know if you teach people to play either. It's something that they learn, but I don't think about teaching. I mean, you can teach someone rules, um, but, you know, the behavior of play, we often think of that as kind of a wild internal force, right? That's something mm -hmm. that people just have and, and we can channel it in different ways or we can influence in different ways, but the force comes from within. But that sounds very philosophical. I like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, what do you think that we, you know, value in playing games? And what is play in games? What's that what's that position in education? Can you name any examples? There's a lot of theorists who've talked about what is shared between good learning and game playing. And there's 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 a lot of ways in which those things come together. That is when you're when you're when you're playing, you're solving non-trivial challenges, right? So there's a, a, and you're you're learning, you're leveling up. So you're you're taking in new information, you're applying it in new situations. Um, you may be developing empathy through a character, or um, you might be there might be some representation that you're you're feeling empathetic towards. So there's been a lot of writing about this. Like what does what do games have in common with good learning conditions? 
Um, and I think so. there's a lot of intersection there. And people have used that as the basis for developing what we call serious games, which are games that basically are aimed at non-commercial, um, non-entertainment ends. So that would be about um, basically uh, rehabilitation games, awareness building games. And there's a whole category of games that that exists to engage people playfully in, in serious topics. It could be pedagogical games like learning math. So there's a whole series of, that's a whole area of, of games that are relevant to education. Mm -hmm. And then when can we make something a playful, like for example, now that we're talking in the context of education, like to learn something that is difficult, dry, boring, uh, make it more easier or more engaging. Like I was thinking like, I don't know, calculus or chemistry, like, can you make any subject playful? Well, that's a really good question. And there's been a lot, again, a lot of thought about that by, by people working in the area of education and, in, and, and educational game design. And it's kind of an interesting question. There's, there's bad approaches and good approaches to that question. One is to use gameplay purely as a reward. So we, we call that, or traditionally that's been called chocolate covered broccoli. So you have something inherently un unpleasant. <laughs> well, broccoli is pleasant, but you have something that you want people to, to engage in or to eat in the case of broccoli. And, and to try to make that more appealing, you, you coat it with something that, that, that changes its character. And so in, in, in uh, educational game design and early on, and we're talking about the 1990s here, there were occasional examples where people would uh, be working through a game form to work on math projects. And then once they had gotten to a certain point, they'd be free to play a game <laughs> that had nothing to do with math or with, or with anything else related to the topic. So it was just purely a reward. I think that what most people are working on now and designers look at now is like, how can we integrate um, what we need to learn educationally into um, the specifics of game mechanics? That is, what are the players doing in the game rather than just seeing it as a sort of external veneer that you lay over um, traditional um, learning materials. So that's an interesting area. I was telling Anton that I, I was remembering that um, I, I went to make like a study with some kids that were learning um, programming and electronics and they were playing a game with some robots. But then I was thinking, it, it's so hard to draw the line between what is just play and games and the actual learning. So it seems that they were also only playing and then they lose this goal or this focus on learning a particular task. So that's a good challenge. I, and also a lot of um, learning, um, learning game theorists have been working on that one and, and sort of pondering that one. And I think there's, there's ways of moving forward with it. But the traditional question was transferability. That is, do... Do learners transfer what they've learned from the game into the world, into the other parts of their lives, or do they just get good at playing the game? So that's that's that was something that also really early on was identified as a question to be resolved through different kinds of research on on games and learning. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I remember uh, in my childhood, I played a game called Backpacker, I think. Mm -hmm. And essentially what you would do is you would backpack across the world or you would travel across the world and you would just learn about these different countries and, you know, uh, ask questions to people in the in the game world and stuff like that. And I remember mm -hmm. that I learned a lot of geography from that game because right. it was fun mm -hmm. and it was really educational at the same time. So, yeah, I had I have a lot to thank that game for just, you know, knowing uh, geography and stuff. Uh, so it's it's really interesting that you can gain so much knowledge from a game. 
That is interesting. I've heard other people refer to that game as a fond memory and and as meaningful to them in terms of their own appreciation of what you can do in a game. The negative side is is like there's a a Simpsons episode where Bart is playing a game where it's basically um, a missiles command type game where he's destroying um, uh, state capitals in the United States. And he realizes at some point that he's being taught the state capitals. And (laughs) and that's the actual reason for playing the game. And and immediately he stops playing the game because he resists that kind of educational um, urge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, of course, we're talking that there are many challenges to incorporate these playful elements into teaching. Mm -hmm. But is is there like a kind of framework that teachers could follow if they would want to incorporate these elements into their teaching? That's a good question. I'm not sure I can really answer that. I think there are probably are frameworks. Um, I think that the main issue is to uh, to create uh, coherent gaming experiences in which the, the the educational content is really well integrated into, like I said, the, the, the game mechanics, which is basically the, the the repeated tasks that a player does. So like in backpacking, you're you're traveling. So there's there's one of the mechanics would be some way of moving around. And then another mechanic in that game might be um, interviewing or querying people. And so there's different there's different um, ways in which that can be integrated. Um, I think that, the, again, the um, the problem is when people just take some of the really obvious ideas about games and then just sort of apply them to educational content. And this we can see also in the term gamification, which has come up is a quite um, pretty well-known concept at the moment, which is basically using game specific game elements in non-game context. So a typical um, game elements that would be could be used in a gamification approach would be things like leaderboards or badges. Mm-hmm or um, different ways of thinking about um, ways in which we take, let's say, the competitive aspect of gaming and then just sort of applying that on top of uh, a, a kind of interactive experience. Sometimes those aren't very well thought through, and, 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 but they're just basically ways of taking some of the things that people find engaging about gaming and applying them to non-game contexts. Like I said, that can be kind of mechanical in some ways and not very well mm-hmm. thought through. How do you think we can avoid that kind of narrative where you give a player a point or, uh, for example, learning a new language, you have an app where you learn a language, you get a point for every time you answer something correctly. It's kind of this one, it has this one dimensional feel to it where you just get rewarded with a fake point. Right. How can we change that in a way? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have the answer to that one, but I think that part of the I, part of the idea here is to again to go back to the autotelic nature of play that it's its own reward and that it's that that should the curiosity of the learner should be rewarded in a meaningful game context through meaningful actions um, and i think that's i think that's the challenge i'm not sure i have a really good answer for that there are so many challenges but they're super interesting exactly, yeah. <laughs> because i yeah i think games are a super uh, and this playfulness are very like a powerful tool to incorporate into education to make like this experience more engaging uh because i think this is one of the hardest thing for educators to do like keep students interested and engaged especially in this uh, steam or stem uh uh subject so i think yeah it has a lot of potential so and again, I'm not a. This is not my key area of research, but I think that a lot of research would also argue that the important thing is not just the 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 game that's as it's designed itself, but also the context of the game, ways in which it engages the learning context outside of the game with all of the stakeholders, 
in the learning environment, teachers, students, um, other people that would be considered stakeholders. So looking at the broader context of, of the learning environment is also really important, not just the sort of the physical formal game itself. And how do you think in your experience teaching that games and these playful interactions can be used to develop innovation skills and foster creativity? I mean, I think that simply encouraging a playful attitude and curiosity is really important. As I mentioned, that's been important in my own journey. And, um, but that doesn't always have to come from, from games or play. That can be just come from other sources of, of inspiration or positive feedback or um, uh, enjoyment and pleasure. So literature, for example, I mean, you know, that could be also very inspiring. That's not a game form necessarily. Let's talk about your, uh, your research in the areas of olfactory interaction. Okay. Uh, so how did you get in, how did you get interested in this field and what kind of inspired you to research olfactory uh, interaction? Okay. So that's a very long journey. So I'll try to give you a but I, I, uh, I've been working in the area of game studies for about 20 years. And I started looking at specifically at drawing upon my background coming from media and photography and film and also teaching in those areas, specifically in the areas of lighting. So I was, was working in the areas of, of, of teaching uh, young photographers and um, young cinematographers about light and how do we manipulate it, how we shape it, how do we think about light in, um, in media production for the most part. And so I transferred that to looking at digital games. And so I did my PhD in the area of game lighting. And I was looking at um, sort of what are the effects. I was working with um, some psychologists who, who knew a lot about the effects of light in real space. But we said, well, how can we take that knowledge and apply it to simulations? Is it possible? And in what terms can we do that? So we wanted to look at how, how uh, sort of how game, uh, how lighting can affect players in digital game simulations. And there's a lot of variables in that, uh, but it was fun. And so I, I worked on that for about um, um, six or seven years and then um, finished my PhD and I wanted to continue, but I didn't necessarily want to be the game lighting guy forever. <laughs> so, so as part of the, my PhD, I started looking at the first chapter was really about looking at the senses broadly conceived and, and thinking about attitudes towards the senses, attitudes towards aesthetics as they're being expressed in the game design community at that time. And, um, so I just, it just helped me to organize my own thoughts and organize my way forward. And as part of that, I was started to look at um, the relationship between game aesthetics and the senses. And there's a close tie between aesthetics and the senses going back to the yeah, 18th century and before. And, and the whole definition of the word um, aesthetics comes from sort of sensory impressions. Mm -hmm. So um, I started to think about, well, what other senses are involved in, in gameplay? And, and I was just curious about smell. I, I, it seemed like something that there wasn't a lot of writing about that it was something where I could identify a few design discourses in smell, but otherwise it was, you know, kind of open ground. At the same time, there's not a lot of smell games. <laughs> so, so it was not difficult to get an overview. And so um, I started to look at smell about 2010 and I started by um, just reading um, broadly and the psychophysiology of smell. I started um, smelling a lot of things. So because it was a fairly new area for me and it's a really different from light, um, it took a little bit of time to figure it out, but I looked, I, I read really broadly. I was looking at psychophysiology. I was looking at literature. I was looking at art history and, um, olfactory art history, uh, olfactory art. I was looking at 
um, sensory anthropology. And I looked in a, a lot of different areas. And then I wrote a, a first paper on, on smell games. And in which was, again, there's, there's, so there's a lot, there's the scratch and sniff has been around and there's, there's ways in which people have integrate smell into media. Um, there's some media experimentation that people have done. Um, there are ways in which people can output smell from digital systems. I started looking at that and, um, yeah. And then I got into some research projects with psychologists. So we were, we've been, and these just recently ended as the Nosewise project. Um, we were looking at smell training specifically. So the idea here is, can you train your sense of smell? Can you get better at it? And if you do, are there any other side benefits to doing that? And so we're looking at that, as, as you mentioned, in the area of, of cognition. Um, that is, if, if my sense of smell is better, does that help me cognitively? And in terms of food acceptance in children, that is, can we use smell training to help kids eat their broccoli, right? So things like that, which is what we're working on right now in the lab here, which is kind of fun. Um, so that, those are some of the areas in which we've worked. We've, it, as part of that, I've learned a lot about interactive systems involving smell and how do we output smell. In, in the area of smell, there's also the input side, which are, is the electronic nose side. So there are, there are sen sensor systems and biosensors that we can use to detect chemicals. So when we work with smell, we're talking about molecules in the air. And so the ENOS part is pretty complicated engineering, and that's not really my area, and it's not really our area at, here at the university where I teach. But the output side is, is challenging, but it's possible to come up with relatively simple solutions to it, and, and you can break down the problems, even though it's still challenging to work with smell. Yeah, for sure. So during just this journey of your research, what have you uncovered? Anything surprising? <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> um, I've learned a lot. I've learned to appreciate how the sense of smell works a lot. I, I, my sense of smell is a lot better. And I have learned a lot about also um, uh, problem solving in, in fairly intractable design challenges working with smell. So one of the things that's really interesting about smell is that when we work with smell, there's no RGB, right? So if you're doing a visual design right now for an interactive thing, you don't have to go out there and create your own pigment, your own, your own red, green, or blue, right? You just you just specify it, and it's easy to create infinite, largely infinite, not infinite, but a lot of you know millions of colors through RGB specification, right? And you can mix a lot of different things. Well, smell doesn't work that way. We don't have three primitive smells that we blend together to create millions of smells, and that's just not how the nose works. Um, the sense of smells are really different from the eye. And it's much more complicated and it's much more nuanced. It is probably our most amazing sense. It's really the most nuanced sense. I mean, they used to think that you could smell maybe 10,000 different smells. And recent recalculations indicate, based on the, how the olfactory receptors work in the nose, is that we probably can distinguish like a trillion different smells. And so, oh so it, it's the, the nuance of the system because we have in the, you know, in the, in the eye, you have a limited number of, of light receptors, different types. In the, in the nose, you have maybe 350 different kinds of receptors and they all respond in different ways to different kinds of molecules. And it's pretty complicated. And they respond to multiple molecules. So it's very, very complicated system compared to the relative simplicity of the tongue, right? Five different receptors. Um, the way the eye works, much more simple. So 
the nose is much more complicated. But what it means is that we always have to work with physical materials. And, and sort of imagine how this would be for visual design, right? If you had, for every monitor you had, every display you had, let's say that you had to have attached to that display a small container of each hue that, that appears on your screen. I mean, you'd either have the, the most crude display or you'd have this gigantic contraption, right? So, so the notion of working with smell means we're, because we have to work with physical smells means that miniaturization is a big problem for us. It's really hard to, to do scent output with a lot of, lots and lots of different scents um, in, a, in a way that is relatively miniaturized. And so there's a bunch of, of practical design constraints that come from the fact that we don't have an RGB of smell. There is no RGB of smell. There's no way that I can specify something over, over, you know, over a network to you that you then output from your phone or from your laptop. That just, there's no way we can do that at this point. But that's the fun part. So this is a sandalwood tincture that I made myself. So part of what we do is we, we have to source smells. We have to source scent materials. Sometimes they come from aromatherapy or perfumery um, suppliers. Um, but what if you need like the smell of broccoli? Like where do you, where do you get that? You know, where, what's the commercial need for broccoli? Oh, to broccoli. And it's not out there. So, so we also extract our own scent materials um, using different kinds of solvents, usually vodka. And it's, it's really, you know, it's super straightforward, but it's super interesting. But it's very, very different from visual design. Do you think having these huge design constraints, do you think that makes you guys more creative in a sense that you have to think even more outside the box <laughs> than, you know, a visual designer or because there seems to be a lot of design constraints? I think that's true. I think you have to really um, it, it means that I think that the it's possible to decompose the problems pretty easily with smell. That is, they're not it's not as huge space to decompose the problems of it. Coming up with good solutions is is really is really super challenging. But that's just just the design part is just one of part of the challenge, right? So the other one is cultural attitudes towards a sense of smell. And, and that's the other thing. So we don't have commonly commercially available scent output devices, except for like aromatherapy diffusers. Um, you don't have a device on your laptop there, as, as far as I can tell, where you can output smell. Um, and you don't have one on your phone. And you know, there's probably most movie theaters you go to don't have sm smell output there. Most game consoles, I mean, none. There's no game console peripheral. Every now and then people propose one. They'll make a prototype, take it to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, and, and then nothing happens. Um, so the, the, the other challenge is, do, what do people think about the sense of smell? Is it important to them? Do they want to smell their email, right? So that was, <laughs> there are always <laughs> questions like that. Do they, do they want to, do gamers feel that their experience of a game is incomplete because they can't smell pit lane or the, the cordite of the battlefield? Well, for the most part, no. They don't think their experience is, is incomplete. They find their experience to be satisfying and complete. So the question is, why would people want to smell things through interactive systems? Maybe they don't know what they miss. You know, yeah, maybe exactly. when you don't know something, you don't miss it. Yeah, so I mean, I could see myself playing a video game and enter a forest or something, and it starts to smell like a forest. Right. I think that would be really cool, actually. You there know? you go. So I think, so I think maybe 
players don't know what they want or they don't know what it would be like because because they've never experienced it. That's a really good so point. So maybe something yeah. needs to be introduced to them. Right. That's very yeah. fair. And I think that that's a really good question. I think that they, there is a, a need for that kind of, and people don't know, but I think we're at a unique moment right now too, don't you? I mean, the pandemic exactly. has completely changed people's understanding of olfaction. I mean, losing sudden loss of, of the sense of smell or also connected to your ability to taste. Uh, that is the single most characteristic feature of the COVID virus. It distinguishes COVID from the flu, for example. And it's, you know, I, I can tell you that our own research on smell training, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to feel good about it, but it got a gigantic boost from the pandemic. Um, people are, you know, we didn't in intentionally start off to look at smell training as a re re rehabilitation from viral smell, from viral infection. But the amount of people that are interested in this now has completely skyrocketed. And I don't think also that people have, ever had a better sense or a more important sense of the uh, more sort of a, a more profound sense of the importance of intact ability to smell in terms of quality of life in terms of of just be able to function i mean those are all, those are all we're really living in a unique time where people have and i still get emails all the time from people that are heartbreaking who who have lost their sense of smell for a year now um, due to COVID, There's, there are people that have not regained their sense of smell since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's incredibly disruptive to their lives. So we're kind of living at a, a weird, unique time where people have never been more aware of what they lose when they lose their sense of smell. That's so true. And, and talking about this, together with all the other researchers at Malmo University, you created a device called Exercent just to, to train your nose. So can you tell us more about this project? Exercend is really simple. It's super, super simple interaction. Um, basically, um, I don't have, a, I have some early prototypes here, but I don't have it on, on hand. But basically it's a, a simple smell identification game that can be played at home on a laptop. Um, and there's a couple components to it. There is a, a game interface that you play on screen. There is a um, RFID tag reader with a little Arduino Uno built inside. Um, and then we have a series of, of scents that are attached to small tag readers that interact with the tag reader. So you put these scents on the tag reader and on the screen, you get a series of choices and you have to identify the smell. It's super simple. Um, and you get points, right? So that's the game part, right? Quantifiable outcome. Um, so it's something that encourages people to play. It also uploads all of the information on gameplay to an online database so that a caregiver could access it. Um, most of the time when people during the pandemic, when people would train their sense of smell, the advice was always just to just find things around the house, you know, tr smell train with spices, with personal care products or soaps, um, anything that you have on hand. And that makes total sense. And you smell them twice a day for 20 seconds per, per, per scent. And you could do it with as few as four cents and just to train that way. But our system has the benefit of making it part of, again, part of a network system so that people can see how you're doing. Um, someone could see how, how, if you're improving, how often you're training, um, how many right choices you're making, are you getting better over time? Um, so there's a lot of reasons in which it's nice to have an interactive system for that, as opposed to just um, smelling things around the house, basically. 
So exercise is super simple. Um, I've given you, you probably have some links and some information I've sent to you that you can put into, you can link to this podcast. Um, we have published a paper on it in Eye Perception Journal. And I would recommend that as a way of getting, it's also open source. So all of our, all of our projects are open source. And I've given you also a link to the Open Science Framework site where you can go and, and um, download all the fabrication information, the code, the construction files, manuals for construction, and it, with a makerspace, a reasonably well-equipped makerspace, you could create Exercent. Or you could create this other device we worked on. This is an early prototype of a device that we made, which is a olfactory display. I'm gonna uncoil un 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 it here. This is the controller for an HTC Vive, and we constructed this small olfactory display that works so that you can connect sent output to virtual objects in a virtual reality simulation. So basically you can, you can trigger sent output. This is an early prototype and we have another pro a, a further prototype that also I, you, you can um, also download all the construction and fabrication information and it's all 3d printed. It has um, this one's based on raspberry Pi. sorry. And then it's, it's really easy to create again using fairly simple means and it's not very expensive. You said the word olfactory display. What, is, what does that mean for people that might not That's know That's a really that? good question. To, to answer your question, an olfactory display is um, an output device for scent. So just in the way that a visual display outputs light and color that we can see, an olfactory display outputs olfactory materials, scent materials, as part of a digital system, an interactive system. So... How do you see digital olfaction evolving in the new in the near future? Really good question. I don't have any real feeling for what will be commercial success in the area of digital olfaction. That's a, sort of a series of business calculations that I can't really make. But I do think that people are interested in exploring the the significance and meaning of our olfactory experience through digital systems. I think that will continue, and. I also think that we're getting better and better. I think there's always been incremental successes in terms of how we learn to deal with the really intractable design challenges of working with scent. Um, I see that all the time that people are sort of finding their way to creating more effective olfactory displays. I think also the, um, the work in the area of e-noses will continue to be quite interesting. That's always driven by things like, you know, f uh, food quality, detection or bomb detection for the most part uh, explosives so I mean, there's a lot of things that drive um e-noses but i think there's gonna be a lot of interest in that but the final thing that's really encouraging to me about uh olfactory working in the area of olfactory design and 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 digital olfaction is that we're constantly constantly these days being overtaken by new research and new discoveries about the sense of of smell and Every time something new is learned, we have new application areas that we can start to explore. So uh, even though I think that the, the the question of commercial adaptation and adoption are is is kind of murky and difficult to figure out, I'm strongly positive about what will happen in the future in terms of coming up with new ways of exploring our sense of smell through digital olfaction and digital olfactory means. I think it's very exciting because now we also have 
like maybe more technology available to do so. So yeah. like you're using your project, like using microcontrollers and other devices. So Absolutely. I think that's very exciting to see. Yeah, yeah we've, we've been talking a lot about your project and your research. Um, what would you say to our listeners of, if they're interested in start, uh, if starting designing their own olfactory projects? What's, what's your number one tip to get started, you think? I think the first thing is, and I would say, first of all, probably you're going to want to concentrate on the output part because the, the enos, there are people starting to do Kickstarter campaigns around providing ways to design olfactory input systems using different kinds of, of different kinds of chips and, and um, biosensors. And that's possible to do. But I think that probably I would start by, by thinking about output devices of some kind. Um, and just to sort of get a quick overview of what are the common problems in that area. So pretty much every olfactory display has three basic functions. Vaporization, you always have to have some sort of scent material, physical scent material. We're always in that realm right now. There is some interest in trying to directly stimulate the olfactory bulb so that you could create completely artificial experiences of scent without actually having scent materials, but that's very invasive as you can imagine. And um, not very, and often painful. So I think it, I don't see that as a viable option. So we're, we're stuck with, with scent materials and physical scent materials. So we always start with that. But then basically when we're thinking about um, a digital system with scent output, there's three main things that any olfactory display does. It vaporizes scent materials. Um, it can blend them or not, but blending's the second step. And then delivery, like how do you get a scent to the nose? And those are the three main, and you can pretty much look at every device that's ever been made and break it down in that way. Um, vaporization is a simple question. I mean, things smell naturally, like molecules just naturally diffuse from a surface. And so that's always happening, but you can speed it up. Um, you can accelerate vaporization through using um, heat, uh, fan sources. You can use piezo transducers and frequency to create small droplets. So there's a lot of ways of vapor atomizers, you know, create small drop droplets as well. So you can basically get sent into the air in a particular way. Um, blending, there's a, a number of different challenges with that, but delivery, like how do you get things to the nose? I mean, uh, oftentimes fans are used. The basic rule of thumb with olfactory displays is use as little scent material as, as you can, as otherwise it just builds up in a space. So there's a few basic rules. Once you're done, once you've sort of grasped those, then you start to experiment with simple forms like bottle capped um, humidifiers, which are small piezo transducers. Um, you can experiment with, with small computer fans or little fan systems. And we do that all the time in education here at, at our university. So it's a super simple way of getting started. And then just download some of our open source materials from the open science framework. We are going to, to share that. Of course. Very cool. So thank you so much, uh, Simon, for today. It was super interesting learning about this, uh, your experience, of course, and this uh, your research with the olfaction. So I think also this is, uh, again, we, we sometimes were not aware of the things that are out there. If you're a teacher and then maybe you want to uh, inspire your students, th this is a really interesting area to... For sure to talk uh, about with your students. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining today and for sharing your projects. Thank you as well, Roxanne and Anton. Thank you for all of the work we've done with Nosewise VR and Exercent has been supported by the Marianne and Marcus Wallenberry Foundation. 
and our colleagues at Stockholm University. Thank you. Thank you. So what did you like about today's topic? Give us a review and join the conversation on Eduvision Live episode on Thursday, December 16 at 5 p.m. Central European time. And, and see how the Exercent project works. You can comment and participate in the live chat on our social media channels on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and Crowdcast. And you can check the episode afterwards. Find the direct links from arduino.cc slash education slash eduvision. Thank you so much and bye. bye. Bye.